Hi, and welcome to EC Honestly with Kayla and Lisa. Here we discuss the ups and downs of working in the field of early childhood education. So listen, hopefully learn, and enjoy. Before we begin, I would just like to acknowledge with gratitude that I am speaking to you from the unceded and traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples here in Port Moody, which includes the Kwekwitlam, Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, and Stolo peoples. I would also like to acknowledge with gratitude that I am speaking to you from the unceded and traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, and Musqueam nations. On this week's episode, Kayla and I have the honor of speaking to Ashley Davies, whose Instagram page goes by Pedagogy and Chill. So Ashley, when you're ready, tell us a little bit about yourself and how long you've been working in the field. Hey, so I've been working in the field for about uh, 10 years and I've had my uh, ECE for about five now. So working on license and license. Uh, and currently I'm a Spotshaw College uh, post-basic instructor for ECE and I've worked predominantly as a one-on-one support and coordinator within uh, preschool classrooms. Awesome. So um, as a teacher, what, what has that experience been like for you? It's been an interesting switch going from uh, working with children to working with adults. <laughs> uh, definitely, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, there's also a lot of differences, obviously. <laughs> Um, but it is interesting getting to see a bit more of what goes into the teaching of ECE itself, especially seeing the differences as um, currently a Capilano uh, ECCE bachelor student. And um, I did my original studies at Douglas College. So kind of seeing the differences between the two as a student and the private sector as an instructor, uh, it really sheds an interesting light on the field itself. Yeah, I um. So I I don't currently work with children five years and unders. I work with teenagers at the moment. So I definitely know what you mean about the big jump, but a lot of similarities for sure. <laughs> and I went to Langara College in 2015, 2016, and what I learned there, and then working in the field for about three years, and then going back to school at Capilano to get my bachelor's as well. I definitely noticed a really big difference in philosophy and approaches and things like that. So we'll dive into that a little bit deeper. Kayla, do you want to mention your background? Yeah, I'm like you, Ashley. I also went to Douglas, um, I but I did the part-time program. I don't know what if you were in the full-time or the part-time, but um, I know, sorry, you were in full-time? Oh, yeah, full-time, yeah. yeah. So yeah, part-time was something that was completely different from full-time. It, you know, it took us longer to stop school, you know, to, to finish our programs. It took us longer to get just even the basic diploma. And I think even in that sense, you can kind of see the difference um, in colleges. And I graduated in 2000 and oh my gosh, 15, I want to say. Um, and then I went back to get my post-basic, so my IT and my inclusive, um, my inclusive practice. And that in itself, again, was also a little bit of an eye-opener because a lot of the um, priorities are given to full-time students. And as a part-time student, you're basically just kind of like waiting around to see if there's any leftovers that you're, that you're able to get. <laughs> Yeah, I saw that a lot in my classes at Douglas. There's a lot of people who were part-time and it was right as the part-time program was closing. So there's a lot of people who weren't even guaranteed that they would be graduating with their ECE. 
Yes. Yeah. That was a big one as well. And then, but in terms of like, you know, I, I will say like, in terms of what you learn, I mean, I think the, the actual education that you receive itself is quite, is quite, is quite amazing. Um, and I mean, Douglas, uh, when I was there was very fortunate. We had a lot of really great, um, instructors like, uh, Deb, you know, everybody loved Deb Smith. Yes. Um, everybody <laughs> loved, um, Kathy Sales, uh, you know, like there were some, you know, you say some name or Alejandra Sanchez, Diane, (laughs) Diane, exactly. Yeah. You say some names. Um, Linda, I think was another one. Uh, you, I mean, you say some names and I mean, like your eyes automatically go bright. Right. So, I mean, there is something to say about the actual instructors and what you're learning is quite amazing. And it's pretty, um, I would say, I think the standard was quite up there with Capilano. Mm-hmm. Um, but the only thing that I did see the difference was, uh, you know, the vast difference in, in the sense of whether or not you were a full-time or a part-time student. Yeah. And that was a very big one that was even evident as a full-time student. Uh, that was very evident to us also was seeing that difference and seeing the frustration from those who were in the part-time program. Um, especially hearing frustrations of ones who it's, you know, I just need this one class and I've been waiting three semesters for it. Yeah. I think I mentioned before I had a friend or have a friend who I think it took her six years part-time to finish her basic ECE diploma. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was, it wasn't great. I I don't have any memory of anyone being a part-time student at Langara because I think I, I could be wrong. I know there were certain people who would step away from the course because it was an intensive three semesters with like eight courses per semester. It was really fast, quick. It was almost like a grade 13 where it was just all, you were there every day. You were there from eight until five every day. It was very intensive. So I know some people stepped away, but I think it was a full-time program. And most of my cohort stayed with me for all three semesters. And what I liked about Langara is that everything was preset. So when you went to go register for things, you didn't have to worry about whether or not you were gonna get a course because if it rejected you for some reason, you shoot a little email to your department chair, Merle, who was the absolute best. And she would just quickly override it and stick you back in. And you know the system did something wrong because you're obviously supposed to be in that course. So that was one thing that I noticed coming to CAP that I had all this stress and anxiety about trying to make sure that everything that I wanted was lining up perfectly. And if I didn't take this course, what could I substitute for it instead if it was full? And I didn't have to do that at Langara. And so that's one thing that I actually really enjoyed about Langara was just the consistency throughout all three terms. Yeah, Yeah. same thing definitely noticed with Douglas and Gap was going between that. Yeah, it can be a lot more stressful when you're like, okay, got to register for this class. Mm -hmm. Knowing a lot of people who... Uh, had that stress of, oh gosh, 3D, it's full, but you need it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing I, I, I also, oh, go ahead, Kayla. No, no, sorry, go ahead. <clears throat> I was just going to say one, one other thing that I noticed too on top of the courses is just the language is completely different too. It was like stepping into a completely different world and I'm in my fourth year, so I've, I've been doing this for a while now and I feel like I have a grasp of it and the philosophy of CAP and their approach, but I've had a few friends that went to Langara as well and graduated with me who have now stepped into CAP this semester or this past fall and 
they're texting me and saying, what is happening? This is not what we learned at Langara. This is completely different. I don't know how I feel about this. I don't know if I want to do this in ECE. I liked that approach. And, you know, I don't remember ever hearing the word pedagogy ever at Langara. I don't think it ever came up once. I could be wrong. And I, you know, my memory, it was intensive um, diploma program. So I could just be forgetting, but I don't have a very clear memory of that or this idea of collective curriculum with children and educators or the idea of transdisciplinary learning. Like everything was very set and certain in a particular way. Or when it came to planning, like you needed a science, you needed a math, you needed a socials. And it was, I mean, it was fine. It was great. And we were learning lots. And I, I really enjoyed that approach. And it really helped me with the center that I worked with after. But then coming to CAP and, and working with the Regio approach or what Regio inspired approach, it's been quite a shift. So I don't know if, uh, if you guys can, either of you can speak to that in the language difference that's been happening. Um, I will say that when I went to Douglas, um, we did learn about like pedagogy was a word that I heard a lot. Um, and the philosophy and the teaching that they teach you to is very much the Reggio inspired or the emergent, um, the emergent responsive curriculum. Um, mm-hmm. and that's why I say it's similar to Capilano. I think, um, I obviously cannot speak from experience because I have not gone to cap, Um, but from my understanding, like there are certain similarities in terms of like what is taught and the language that is used. Um, collective curriculum was also something that, you know, I did learn while I was in college. Um, and again, that was very much, and I think though it, it very much depends on, excuse me, who your instructor is. So I can say again, from experience, I think very much the two names that come to mind are Deborah Smith and Alejandra Sanchez, who were, um, and I want to say more than anything, Alejandra, she was very revolutionary and groundbreaking in how she taught her classes. And she faced a lot of backlash, I personally feel from a lot of students just because she was not, you could not satisfy her with the, um, with the cookie cutter assignments for lack of better words, like you had to go beyond for her in order for her to even acknowledge that, yes, this is education. This is pedagogy. This is what you are here to do. I don't know if you had a different experience, Ashley. Yeah. I actually never had a hundred, I think once or twice. Uh, I had her for a practicum. Uh, I know I had her for my first practicum and she, she is a hard teacher. She does make you want to, she makes it where you have to do more than, that's a very big thing that I found a lot of people were either they either loved or they resisted with that. And I think one of the big differences with CAP was very much still uh, pedagogy was definitely heavily taught. There was a very heavy regio focus. Um, but I think one of the big differences language wise is I don't think I ever really heard the word regio inspired at Douglas as much. There was a lot of regio. There was often times I remember by like near the end of the program, there's a good point where I was like, I hate, I don't want to hear Reggio ever again because <laughs> you just hear it so much. And so no, going totally to cap agree. and it turning into this is Reggio inspired. It cannot be replicated. Here's mm-hmm. how it fits. Here's how this could look in Canada. Here's how this could look in other places. Um, that itself was a very big language switch too, was kind of, the acknowledging of a Reggio approach, how it's influenced, but that it's not replicated was a really big difference between how 
the same approach was taught by two different places. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think that's definitely a big one. And the reason that I say that for me, it was always taught Reggio inspired is because I remember, and I think I actually still have this assignment. I wrote in an assignment saying that something was Reggio based and Alejandra drew like a, like crossed it out completely and wrote in a big note and said, like, never are we supposed to say that we are Reggio here because we are not, that is a separate town. That's a separate, you know, that's a different, a whole different place. We cannot replicate what they have here maybe one day, but not yet, because there are so many factors that need to be taken into account, but we can be inspired by that philosophy, which is why you here in Canada are never allowed to say that you are a quote Regio center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that in itself was mind boggling. Cause you never think of it that way. Right. You think of Regio as a philosophy only not a town, a city, uh, you know, a way of being a way of life. Yeah. And I think with the other approaches that I've at least experienced in centers, they, you either are this or you aren't, right? Like if you have an emergent curriculum, that's what you are, or no matter where you are, or if you're theme-based, it's very just generic and Reggio isn't, it's very unique. Um, another thing that I feel like I learned a lot to at, at Langer at the time was the developmentally appropriate practice and looking at the different stages and sort of checklists almost and um, seeing the stages, the increment stages. And it's important to know those things too, but I think I didn't, I wasn't able to step away from that and sort of be, and sort of get into the mind frame of, you know, every child is at their own pace until I was actually in the field experiencing with children, because I felt like in school, they want you to know all these steps, right? Cause we need to know the background of everything, but it's so heavily, talked about that when you step out of it into a center and children are all of a sudden aren't meeting these things that they've been telling you with you know development that you're like whoa they're behind whoa they need intervention and so I feel like that also was something that in my practice I've just slowly naturally stepped away from but was also talked about a lot when I was going to college I mean it could have changed by now as well and I loved my experience at Langara but that was something that was talked about a lot I think too, definitely, definitely had a lot of that uh, to some extent with Douglas. I think teaching with Sprasha, it still definitely follows that developmentally appropriate. That's when I hear from a lot of students is the surprise that the developmentally appropriate pra- like practice is not always going to be accurate, that they're not always going to follow that timeline. And like one of the examples um, and apologies, I can't think of what the source of it for was it right now, but one of the things they were talking about was looking at the Indigenous communities, um, specifically I think it was looking at Stolo and how uh, their, developmental pro- their developmental stages were different than um, other children. They found that children were walking earlier, having more physical development at an earlier rate, yet would be considered, uh, would have been considered delayed in language, despite the fact that there was no, there wasn't a delay. It was just a different in when things were developed. And you see that in many different places. There's a lot of obviously similarities with it, but yeah, it's still one that does get heavily taught. Um, I know like at CAP, that's one a lot of instructors have brought up is the idea that developmentally appropriate practice is you need to know it um, because you, it's going to be a foundation piece. 
and it's going to connect you, especially if you work as a, was like a one-on-one support in the school system. Um, I think it's, I think it was Rachel I had who said, you have to know it to push against it. You mm-hmm. have to kind of know the rules to go against them. I like that. I think that's, that's very true. Um, and I, I mean, it's interesting too, like that whole developmental, you know, the developmentally appropriate practice, I think is something that's going to take so long to push against just because I think as human beings, especially here in the Western world, it's almost like a checklist that we have to write off. And I think what is also doing a disservice to a lot of children is that many companies or many, um, you know, Instagram pages or, uh, you know, TV ads are kind of going by this developmentally appropriate practice to sort of also, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Feed off of uh, parental, um, like the the self-esteem, like a low, like the, oh my goodness, I can't even think of the word right now. Um, but you know what I'm talking about? Like uh, the, um, like there's the scare, the, what they're scared of, right? If my child is not meeting these checklists for lack of better words, mm-hmm. are they behind? Are, you know, where, where are they lacking? What can I do to make it better? It's, it's the fear of comparison. Fear, thank you. <laughs> That's what's been driven in the school systems, right? And it just, it falls lower and lower and lower down in age until, you know, you, you have an infant even before they're born and they're in the womb, you're already just like thinking about all the things you need to do to make them successful rather than focusing on, you know, Hey, you're growing a human being. That's pretty freaking amazing. You know? So that's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. This fear tactic that's, that's just there in society that parents and people and children have to face constantly. And it's a hard one to push against too. Like I always think about, I remember having a parent come in asking to be put on our wait list because she's like, oh, I think this one will help me get into the private schools. I was like, oh, how old your little one? Well, we're hoping to be pregnant next month. They weren't even pregnant. Oh, they were trying to get on wait lists, like, yeah. and thinking about getting into private schools. And like, it was, I'm like, wow. I'm like, I can't imagine that stress of having to worry about, will my child get into a private school before before you're even pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's a very real uh, under- fear for a lot of them. I understand putting your name on a wait list as soon as you're pregnant, because now you have to start thinking about work because spaces are so limited. So, I mean, I understand it in that sense, but I find that very interesting that, you know, you're thinking of starting a family and you're already kind of going through the notions of, okay, how am I going to prepare this hypothetical child for, for success? It's the need, it's the need to know, the need to have a predetermined, a set um, goal or plan or calendar, anything. And that's something that has been taught at CAP to resist as well. And I really like this word resist that you've used, Ashley, in being, in settling into this uncertainty and sitting with this tension and this uncomfortable place. And I think that's what ECEs have to do more and more because when I, you know, when I think about Langara, I did learn a lot of basic things that were really important. You know, how to make a felt story was really important. And I use those all the time. And, you know, which, how to analyze a book and whether or not it's appropriate, right? And and what are the underlying tones and messages of that? So it's really, it's, it's tricky. There's like a balance, but you have to have these moments. And I think this is why I love the degree program. And this is why I think, 
the level of education needs to be at a higher standard for ECEs because there's so much more that you're exposed to being in the longer degree program. And at least for me, it's opened my eyes a lot more and way more if I hadn't had gone back. And I know Kayla and I have talked about this in a previous episode about professional development and how with ECE, you can sort of choose anything. You can choose to go to a felt story one. You can choose to go to one on ergonomics, but are you choosing the one that's actually going to challenge you and make you a better ECE? So this idea of curriculum and, and what the standards are and whatnot, what are, what's your take on that, Ashley? I think definitely with the standards, um, there's clear differences, especially between the public and the private. Um, I think there's definitely... Uh, there's definitely a lot of positive changes happening uh, within the private to kind of make it match a bit more with what the public sector does. Um, but there is definitely quite a bit still of that focus on you need to learn, you need to have your classroom divvied up into sections. There needs to be the science corner and the drama corner, very much so kind of like that memorize the developmental milestones or just memorize your theorist. And that's even what I remember from Douglas. And I hated theory when I was at Douglas because I hated memorizing. Yet at CAP, I love looking at theorists because it's diving into them. You're allowed to say, actually, you know what? I don't like this part of this theory or I like this as opposed to learn it, absorb it. And I think that's one that we still unfortunately see is very prevalent is more memorize this, then mm-hmm. how do you put this into practice? At, at Langara, there was um, a t- so the department head, Merle, she was teaching the history course and all the different theorists and everything. And I, we still had tests in ECE at Langara, which I haven't had one test at CAP, which has been wonderful because I feel like you're actually showing your knowledge better mm-hmm. that way. But at Langara for her course, she said, you know, I have to give you guys a test on this. Like, it's not a choice for me. So here are the, like the seven different people we're going to learn about. No three of them for the test. These are the questions I'm going to ask you. And it was exactly what she said. You got, it was, it was pick three different theorists, answer these questions. Because for her, she was like, this doesn't teach you anything. This doesn't help you grow if you're just supposed to memorize all the philosophy and not apply your own thinking to it in any type of way. So that's another thing at CAP that's been really wonderful. Kayla, did you want to add? Uh, yeah, I was going to say with the theorists, I have to, I kind of coming back to what you were saying, Ashley, like, I think it really depends. Um, yes, it depends on the philosophy of like, where it is that you're studying. But more specifically, for, in my experience as a student, it really depends on who your instructor is. Because mm-hmm. yes, I mean, did we have to learn about the theorists? 100%. I, I'm like you, I loathed it. Because I mean, like, I could tell you 20 million things about Piaget. But did I believe in what he what he said? Or do I believe that we should base all of childhood on one person who did his studies on three children? And this is what we are basing childhood on. I absolutely hate it. And I'm the first one to say that I absolutely hate that mentality. But what's interesting is that we were also told to rebel against these theorists um, by, again, by specific instructors who were saying, kind of like what you were saying, Lisa, were saying, yes, Obviously, I have to test you because this is what the requirement is, but don't go into your practice thinking this is status quo and this is what you have to, you know, this is what childhood is based on, you know, take this knowledge and, you know, 
think critically with it and think critically against it. But again, I think that's also very dependent on who your instructor was. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one for almost any of the schools is it always is going to depend on your instructor. Because that's one like, uh, like I know working at Sprout a lot of the time we get a bad rep. <laughs> uh, I'm like, not, not immune to knowing that, <laughs> but it is a big thing. It really depends on how the instructor chooses to bring up these topics and same kind of with Douglas there were teachers who did an amazing job with it um and then you did have ones too it was market you just have to know it you just have to pass the course um and so far I think at CAP been fortunate haven't seen an example of kind of like the teacher who's not going to teach it with CAP's mindset Mm -hmm. (laughs) of it but yeah it can be really teacher specific of if they believe you can rebel against if they believe that this is how they want uh, people to go into the field. That's how they're going to teach it. But it can definitely be one. Yeah. Where you can see a lot of differences, even within the same uh, schools purely based off of the instructor. So what's your, what's your sort of take and philosophy with the courses that you're teaching and, you know, building curriculum? Yeah. With the courses I teach, Currently, um, one of my main goals has been trying to get my students to move past the memorize everything to be able to kind of, for like a better word, word vomit onto a test. Yep. Um, That's what what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been a really big kind of switch. Um, But definitely kind of getting more uh, like the, well, why do we follow this? Asking those questions, kind of getting them to sit in that moment of tension, getting them to be at tension with these ideas of you're allowed to disagree. And I remember saying that once and one of them going, oh, and one of them, she goes, can I, can I disagree with something? I'm like, yep. And she's like, I hate Vygotsky. <laughs> I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I was like, all right. She's like, I can hate Vygotsky. I'm like, I'm like, give yourself a valid argument. And sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm like, you don't have to like uh, everything. She's like, I don't really like Reggio. I like Montessori. I'm like, that's that's fine. That's fine. But it was getting that idea. And a lot of my students are international students. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does also change the approach in the classroom of looking at how there's such a vast difference globally in different classroom ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so kind of bringing that into my classroom, ha- having to acknowledge that most of my students are coming from very different backgrounds of education. And how do I incorporate the ideas of you're not memorizing this, but you're taking things of how can I become a better educator? How can I benefit the children? How can I do things that are actually beneficial and that I know why rather than just make a pretty curriculum plan? Mm -hmm. I think what's also um, important that you acknowledge that you have a lot of international students um, is that you also don't want to be making anybody feel like what they've learned growing up or the education that they have is wrong or bad. And I think that's also a little bit of a, of a slippery slope, right? That you're trying to, you know, be inclusive and say like, this is not the only way certain things are because, you know, around the world, what, you know, children led curriculum or a Reggio inspired room is that's not how, you know, it's just not status quo. It's 
your teacher is your all-knowing being and you respect what they say and you memorize everything that they say. So now coming to a, a brand new philosophy that's like on the, like a whole different end of the spectrum, I think is also extremely, it's revolutionary, but I think that can also be very scary at the same time. Mm, and I think that scariness is one I hear from a lot of students, that fear of the unknown, yeah, that, that idea of playing with tension and that I think naturally we want to shy away from tension. We want to shy away from uh, topics that seem hard. We want to shy away from things that seem what if a parent doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. And that's a really big thing um, I've kind of had to bring into my classrooms is that we're not, we're not a business model. We can look at it when I teach Uh, when I teach classes, that's all about administrative. Yes, we look at kind of more of that business structure of how do you keep finances? How do you keep uh, your, how do you keep your center running? But in the same breath, we're not looking at parents as a customer. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a big thing too, is the, that fear of what if parents don't like what I'm doing? What if parents want that picture of the handprints that have a smiley face on them? What if parents want that worksheet and that becomes a big thing too is and as I've heard from a lot of my students they're like you know when I've done um, I have a lot of students who were elementary school teachers in different places uh, predominantly for mine who've been elementary school teachers who've come to Canada and become ECE uh, predominantly usually Korea and Japan Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's a very big one kind of like you know um, they're like parents would not like it if I did it this way Mm-hmm. How do I respond to that? And that becomes a big thing that I find that comes into the classroom is that is how do you how do you deal with that? Especially if you have that experience where it is you need to appease the parent. They are the customer. They're the one paying you. And how do we move from that mindset? Yeah, that that really dives into um, sort of your ethical approach to things, too, and making sure that everybody's needs are met. And then it sort of makes me think about Peter Moss when he's talking about investment and quality childcare and all these different things that sort of fall into it. And so um, our wrap up question, I think, is, is as an instructor and as a student, do you think that there's a common philosophy or curriculum that can be taught to all ECEs across the board? Like, what's your take on that? Especially when we do live in a world where parents are wanting something particular, but we're being taught or potentially being taught um, another way or an alternate perspective. What do you think about finding a happy medium? I think there definitely needs to be a happy medium. There needs to be some more um, of a shared bit between private and uh, private and public sector, um, especially. And I mean, even in the public sector, as all three of us have shared from different schools, different philosophies. There definitely needs to be, I think, more of a shared stance. There needs to be more commonalities. There needs to be more of a look at, okay, we're not just teaching developmentally appropriate practice, but we're not ignoring it. We're not just teaching Regio. Um, we're acknowledging other formats. Um, and I think the ELF is a good connector for that mm-hmm. because everybody, hopefully, <laughs> everybody is teaching the ELF. Um, but even then, how you teach it makes a big difference. How do you teach pedagogical narrations? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really big thing where there's not a lot of commonality, I find. Like yeah. even between all three of my, 
uh, my of Douglas Caplano and Sprottshaw, all different for pedagogical derivations. <laughs> um, was different as well. Yeah. And that's what I've heard from a lot of people. Yeah. Is that Lingara's was different too. Uh, and that's a big thing is when we're all going to be going into the field, you're not going to be separated into, all right, at this center, uh, they hire Sprottshaw. This center, they hire Capilano. At this center, they hire Langara. Oh, it's going to be mixed. Mm -hmm. And then you have students who, you have teachers rather, who can't work well together because you have differing ideas. And I think most of us have probably been in that position before where you've gone head to head with another teacher because you've learned very different things. And then it's putting it into practice. It's, well, this is what I learned. This is what we're doing. That's like, and that's, I think, a big thing that there needs to be some more changes in that manner. There needs to be some more similarities and things like how do we teach pedagogical narrations? How do we talk about uh, pedagogies as a whole? And I think if there was more commonality there, it would make our field stronger as a whole. I agree. I, I think about now people coming and being like, well, the tension is good. Well, the uncertainty is good. This mix of perspectives is good. This is what we want. We want you to have to work through these things. But if you don't have a foundation that everybody's aware of to work through, then it makes it very difficult to get there, especially if you're so set in your ways. And like when I came out of Langara, I was looking at the people that I was working with. And I think I picked up honestly a lot of bad habits from them originally because I mean, I was very young, I was naive, I was kind of like, okay, this is what I've been taught, this is what I'm going to do, this is what they're doing, so, you know, they have the experience, I'll just follow what they're doing, now that I'm at CAP, I'm like, whoa, no, 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 like, you need to go back to school, and this is why the level almost needs to be raised, but I agree, there, there, the tension of having different perspectives is good, but there should be a, a common place where everybody is exposed to very, like, a similar, um, aspect of ECE so that when we do come together we're coming together with the same core but from a whatever perspective fits your philosophy and your values the best. Kayla did you want to add anything? I was going to say as well uh, just kind of going back to your experience Lisa you know talking about how you're younger in the field and you have you know an idea and then you're looking up to people who have been in the field longer and then in that sense, it almost becomes a battle of who's been who's been in the field longer, because therefore I know better. And I think what's also doing a disservice is that we don't have that regimented mandated, um, you know, form to say that, you know, you should be taking those professional hours towards bettering your practice towards learning new philosophies, not just the quote felt story workshops, like you were saying. Um, and I think in that sense, we are doing a greater disservice to our sector by not upholding um, our educators to seeking, um, you know, greater knowledge or me or seeking new philosophies. And definitely agree with that, that I think too, part of it is it's not always accessible. Like working with people who've been in the field for 30 years, um, even like with the ELF changes, someone who's been in the field for 30 years, that's a big thing I've heard is I don't understand this language. Mm -hmm. uh, that's even like with the government adding in the uh, pedagogy studies and having the new pedagogists in BC, it's great in theory, but there also needs to be something in place for educators who have been in the field for uh, 30, 40 years, even 15, 20 years. And kind of how do you reteach a new language? Cause that's what it is. 
there's a lot of a new language. And that's a big thing I've heard from people like uh, my mom's ECE also. And that's a big thing is, you know, uh, they weren't taught pedagogical narrations and things like that. That wasn't, that wasn't what was being taught. And kind of now you have a lot of people who see, okay, this is what like Capilano, for instance, in the bachelor program, uh, you're bringing up topics of like neoliberalism and social constructed education. And then it's not going to be put into place when it's not readily understood. And there's not as many resources for educators to relearn without just taking the bachelor program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think we'll leave it. I think that's a great place to sort of end off and leave it is this idea of accessibility and what neoliberalism and investment and quality and all these other things start popping up when we're speaking about language. So maybe, you know, we'd love to have you back on another episode and continue the conversation, but we'll pause it there for now. Ashley, thank you so much for joining Kayla and I. We are so happy to have you here. Do you have any uh, final thoughts that you'd like to share? Yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been great getting to chat with you guys. And um, yeah, nothing off the top of my head. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ashley. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for listening in on this week's episode of EC Honestly. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email at echonestly at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram at echonestly.com.